We're in Revelation chapter 7, famous because it's the sealing of the 144,000. Chapter 6, if you recall, concluded with the statement, For the great day of his wrath is coming, who shall be able to stand? Well, in some sense at least, this recap we have in chapter 7 may be at least part of the answer to that. One of the things I want you to be conscious of as we go through the book of Revelation is its organization or its structure. And we've talked about it. It's the only book that has a divinely inspired outline that organizes the book. Verse 19 of chapter 1 divides the book of Revelation into three parts. That which thou hast seen, John, which refers to chapter 1, the vision that he saw. The things which are, those seven churches, chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall be metatauta, hereafter, or after these things. And from chapter 4, verse 1 on, we have the metatauta. In fact, it opens up with metatauta. So we're in the third section of the book. But as we go, we're going to discover other elements of organization. There are actually thousands of them. Libraries are full of this, the subtleties of this, the structure of this text. The ones that becomes very obvious as we peruse the 14 chapters uh, make from 6 to 19 that make up the action part, so that in a sense, uh, we're quickly conscious of the seven seals of the book and the seven trumpets and the, and the seven bowls of wrath being poured out. There's many organizational elements here. One of the things you'll notice if you're very careful is in each group of seven things, seven major things, there's always six and then a change of subject for a while, then the seventh. It's almost as if, in fact, it seems very clear that there's a deliberate design going on where in a series of sevens they give you six of them. Then it seems the writer, the author, the, however you want to phrase it, changes subject for a little bit and there's a recap of some kind an overview, an editorial comment, uh, what have you, before going on to the seventh one. As you discover that, it starts. the organization starts to become clear. After the seven letters of seven churches, we had chapters four and five, the vision of the throne of heaven, which is sort of an introduction to this major six through 19 sweep of chapters. And of course, chapter six, last time's lesson, we took, we took six of the seven seals. As these seals opened up, various things were unleashed going forth. And that was described. But suddenly now in chapter 7, there is really a, a pause, a deliberate overt pause, so that everything is sort of, it's sort of like a freeze frame. And then uh, some explanations of what uh, go on that uh, are fairly broad in scope. And at the end of this chapter, they'll be concluded, and chapter 8 will pick up the thread before, about the opening of the seal, the opening of the seventh seal, and it goes on from there. Only to reveal the seventh seal involves seven trumpets. Fine, but the point is, uh, there's this chapter seven, what the scholars call a parenthetical passage. We'll discover when we get to the seven trumpets. We'll have six trumpets, and then there is a break. There's a parenthetical insertion. When you get to chapters 15, 16, you get the pouring out of the bowls of wrath. The break there is very subtle. It's just one verse, but it's clearly a change in pace from the others. So it's a, the, the structure seems to be very consistently applied. Now, chapter 7 is going to be significant to us for several reasons. First of all, it opens the whole issue of Israel. And it's one of those places that it's going to be very important for us to try to get a grasp of the strategic position of the nation Israel and God's plan. Israel certainly is the centerpiece of the Old Testament. It actually is also very conspicuous in the Gospels and the Epistles, but it's more subtle and more complex. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that that we're going to touch upon. But clearly what is obvious in the book of Revelation, Israel reemerges now to be the centerpiece of the action in the book of Revelation. And if you're confused about the, the relationship of Israel and God's plan, especially in the future, you can't help but be confused about the book of Revelation because it's a very, very central part. And it's interesting that as we study we, this book of Revelation, we also notice quite separately, that in world events, the nation Israel occupies a place that seems all out of proportion. Here's a little city called Jerusalem that's got no resources, no natural harbor, no nothing to commend it. And yet it is the bone in the throat of all, all countries in terms of a peace, world peace. Zechariah predicted that it would be that way, and indeed we're observing that the, the problem of of Jerusalem is on everyone's mind, each with their own agenda. In any case, chapter 7 is going to deal with the ceiling of 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But before we get into that, it's going to, I think, be useful for us to set aside 
if we can, some misconceptions. There is a very commonly held view, held by a, a, a number of groups, that Israel, since she rejected her Messiah, she forfeited the promises that were given to her in the Old Testament. And the church, thus, replaces Israel as the beneficiary of those promises in a spiritual or symbolic sense. Now this is a quick summary of a view that is sometimes called replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. It's sometimes called reconstructionism. It's also, uh, uh, it takes uh, several other forms, Kingdom Now, uh, the Dominionist. There's a number of groups that build their theological position on this kind of a foundation. There are some problems with this foundation. First of all, if you're going to study the Old Testament, you'll discover that the, the promises, the, the uh, covenants, the promises God gave Israel that we're talking about are unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant has its conditions, but the Abrahamic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, the Davidic Covenant were unconditional. So Israel can't blow it if they tried. Big problem there. Furthermore, if you study the Epistle of Romans, Paul's definitive statement of Christian doctrine, sometimes called the Gospel according to Paul by some, unlike some of his letters which are very um, practical, almost dashed off to solve, put out certain fires, the book of Romans is quite different, very well organized, very definitive statement by Paul of Christian doctrine. In that comprehensive treatment, he spends three chapters, chapters 9, 10, 11, hammering away on the role of Israel in God's plan and its future destiny prophetically. And you really have to do some distortions, uh, allegorizations and so forth, to try to get around those very express statements. But going even more fundamental than that, you really won't understand end-time prophecy unless you understand Daniel 9, this remarkable prophecy that Gabriel gave Daniel involving the famous 70 weeks. The uh, 69 weeks that occur from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem that predicted the exact day that the Messiah would present himself as a king, which he indeed did on the very day predicted, and how there would be an interval, verse 26, 926, and uh, only the climax of the final seven-year climax of God's plan with Israel in the center of it. And in fact, uh, Revelation 6 through 19 is basically an expansion of that period of time which scholars call the 70th week of Daniel. Now, the point, point is, is that the church was not available during the 69 weeks. Couldn't possibly be. And uh, the premise is, is that the church will not be in the 70th week either. It's removed prior to then. The church is the element that occupies that interval from between the 69th and 70th week. And Paul expresses that, in effect, in Ephesians 3. But there's another issue, too. This has all been confirmed to Mary. When Gabriel announced the birth of Jesus Christ to Mary, he indicated he would be destined to take... David's throne. He's never done that. You have to allegorize that very broadly to get around that. David's throne is a very specific thing. He's presently sitting on his father's throne. But expressed in the Old Testament and the New is the day when he will take David's throne. And David's throne did not exist during his ministry. It's something yet future. The name Israel appears 75 times in the New Testament. And in each of those times, including one controversial passage, it refers clearly to national Israel. There's one passage widely misunderstood due to a lack of understanding of Greek structure. And I won't get into that here, but I'll say, if say Galatians 6.16 also refers, strangely enough, to national Israel. But that gets into some technical arguments we don't have to deal with here at this particular juncture. In fact, the passage there it sets out the Israel of God distinct from the church to prevent making them synonyms. Now, you wonder, one of the things you need to understand is there is a trail of blood from Augustine to Auschwitz. You see, when the church, after Constantine, became politically correct, when it was uh, okay to be a Christian or Constantine, and later, a couple of emperors later, it gets ordained as the state religion, they had a problem. Because this idea of teaching the believers that Christ is going to come back and dispossess the world from its evil rulers and rule himself, that's not a popular theme to be selling the Roman emperors. That wasn't politically correct, if I may. A theologian by the name of Oregon started the path towards confusion by allegorizing, treating the scriptures symbolically, arguing these things aren't literal, that they're symbolic. Augustine ran with that one, and it was under his leadership that they developed a, a form of eschatology, or doctrine of the last times, that is amillennial. This concept of Christ actually ruling literally was said to be symbolic 
and he'll rule in our hearts. And so they had ways of getting around that. And, of course, that Augustinian view, not only that but many other matters, uh, dominated the church for over a thousand years. Now, it's interesting that this uh, idea that the church was destined to dominate the earth was one of the driving forces uh, in the whole history of medieval Europe. The quest for temporal power by the established church filled the cemeteries and uh, uh, becomes the driving theme behind most of what makes up medieval history. It's interesting, even with the Reformation, which did incredible things, positive things, astonishing discoveries in terms of realizing that salvation is by faith alone, the return to a biblical basis of faith, exemplary conduct on the part of many of the great reformers. Much has been said about that, but what's interesting is that they didn't go far enough. It's interesting that the reformers, in large measure, didn't get into They had their hands full with what they're doing. I mean, people willingly being burned at the stake for this uh, by faith alone issue was a handful. So they didn't re-examine the eschatological uh, heritage they had inherited from Augustine. And that's why even to this day, most Protestant mainline denominations have an amillennial eschatology. It's a, it's, a, it's a heritage from Augustine, not from the Scripture. And if it, one of the great tragedies of the so-called replacement theology is that it not only led to the Holocaust of Europe... The church has major responsibility here. And if you want to get into that, I encourage you to read Hal Lindsey's definitive book called The Road to Holocaust. Man of books. One of the best books Hal's done. And it will it'll startle you. It's important because we're on that path again. This replacement theology, this anti-Semitic form of Christianity is going to set the stage for the next Holocaust, which will be worse than the previous one, according to Jesus Christ. Jesus said the time would come when the, in the time of Jacob's trouble, speaking of the great tribulation, he says there would be a time of trouble such as the world had not seen at that time or ever would see again. So uh, bad news. Uh, the Holocaust in Europe was a precursor of what's coming. There are all kinds of views that led to the Holocaust, all kinds of tragic ideas. The Crusades are part of this, the blood libel hoax, the, uh, the, the Jews were the scapegoats for the Black Death. All kinds of tragic misconceptions were used by the, the establishment quote, Christianity over the centuries to abuse the Jews. It's tragic for the Christian church, too, because the Christian church and all this anti-Semitism uh, lost visibility of its own heritage. Many Christians today don't really understand the New Testament because of a lack of Old Testament background. And, and of course, the real cause of all of this is, we'll discover when we get to Revelation 12, that the real driving force behind anti-Semitism is Satan himself, and Revelation 12 will lay that out for us. There is a view that we'll take up then that uh, part of this is that uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ is predicated upon the remnant of Israel confessing their sin and petitioning him to return. And Satan's strategy would appear to be to wipe out the remnant before that can happen. And that would explain the intense, malicious element of his agenda relative to Israel. But we'll get to that when we get to Revelation 12. But I think it's important for us for, not just for revelation, but also for understanding the Bible, to understand the fallacy of this, of this myth called Reconstructionism. From Genesis 12 on, the biblical message focuses on four unconditional covenants that God made with Abram and his descendants through Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. And the destiny of the entire world hangs on God's faithfulness of those covenants. And uh, notice I'm not talking about the Mosaic covenant. That was conditional. I'm going to these others. See, the blasphemy that God has discarded Israel, and thus the completion of these covenants, uh, is prevalent throughout the church today, and yet it is blasphemous because it denies Israel the place that God has ordained in His plan for them. And it, the fact is, is that very issue is going to lead the world to Armageddon, as we'll see. Now, to refresh our memories here, you might take a quick look at uh, Genesis 12. I know it's familiar to you, but let's just take a quick look at Genesis chapter 12, first three verses. The Lord had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and thy kindred, and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee of a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verses 2 and 3 are the famed Abrahamic covenant. It has seven, surprising, huh? seven stipulations. I will make thee of thee a great nation. And clearly he has. I will bless thee, that is personally. And make thy name great, and indeed he has. And thou shalt be a blessing. It's interesting that the three monotheistic religions on the earth all look 
to their roots in Abraham. The Jews, of course, Christianity as a result, and Islam does too, in its strange way. And I will bless them that bless thee. Now there is a refutation of anti-Semitism. Someone has given me some shards that may have come from a Scud missile. I plan to mount them in my office on a little plaque, and I'll just put Genesis 12, 2 and 3 underneath that. I'll bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, and there is a hint of what else is coming. That's the hint of the fact that we're all beneficiaries of this. Now, incidentally, this curse is still valid at the second coming. Remember the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. The nations of the world are going to be judged by how they treat this group that Jesus calls my brethren. Remember, he was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And by the way, the church can't be present at that thing because in the church period there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, Paul says several times. One of the things that should catch our attention as we look at the book of Revelation is the reemergence in the book of Revelation with this distinction between Israel and non-Israelites, as we'll see. That tells you it's a post-church event. And, of course, uh, Jesus, incidentally, did the woman at Samaria by the well. Remember, he said, salvation is of the Jews. Remember, one of the first questions she had is she realized who he was. He really gets at the real issue, but he answers her earlier question in the footnotes as week. Salvation is of the Jews. And he goes on. So, we could talk about the Abrahamic covenant, but I think it's important for you to refresh yourself on that, make a study of it. Meantime, we'll pick up the second major covenant. Uh, it's hinted here in Genesis 12, in verse 7, but that's just a preliminary hint. We're going to get to the Palestinian covenant. In verse 7, the Lord appeared unto Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 7, appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Sometime we study Abraham, study his altars. He clearly had an altered life, if you'll excuse a bad pun. He grows, he makes mistakes, but he grows through them, and uh, it's a very, very exciting study. But it's when you get to chapter 13, we'll pick it up about verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, art, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, and the length of it, and to the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee, and, and so forth. So, the Palestinian covenant. Now, this commitment that God gave him in chapter 13 is sealed with a deed, in a sense, in chapter 15, picking up about verse 9. It said, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, and a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in the midst, and he laid each piece one against the other, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. But when the sun was going down... A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a sojourner in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age." This, of course, is predicting their eventual sojourn to Egypt and, their, and ultimately being slaves there. But then verse 16, But in the fourth generation they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun was going, went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. It was traditional for a, a major covenant to be witnessed by two people making an offering, splitting it, and the two of them walking together between those pieces. That was the way of establishing the covenant. I want you to notice here that Abram was in a deep sleep. He was not a party to the covenant in the sense of having to perform it. It was unilateral on, by God's part on the, towards Abram. In any case, by the way, later in the text, Abram was counted faithful. So you can't argue not being faithful. That's easily refuted too. And it's interesting to, to, that we have the smoking furnace and the burning lamp go through them. But verse 18, I love this. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gerkesites, and the Jebusites. There are ten nations occupying the land at the time that God bequeaths this, in effect, to Abram. Three of them will be taken care of. When Joshua conquers the land, there will be seven left. Sound familiar? Ten originally, seven left. We'll be talking more about that in our next lesson as we talk about the book of Joshua 
possibly being a foreshadowing or a model of the book of Revelation. But I love this, when you look at the land that's been given them, when people want to talk about the West Bank, I like to say, which river are you talking about? See, this really is, not to, not to the Jordan, but to the Euphrates. But of course, that's millennial. I don't think that's the subject of any particular peace negotiation these days. So we'll leave that one. But uh, Now, it's interesting that this, in effect, becomes the sealing of the commitment, this passage in Genesis 15. Uh, I think it has an intimate relationship with the title deed that we talked about last time. Or time before last, actually. And by the way, this covenant was, has been confirmed by Moses in Ezekiel, by Moses in Deuteronomy 30, the first eight verses, and in Ezekiel 16, amplified again in Ezekiel 36. But we're going to move on. There's another covenant, the Davidic covenant, David being the king. This is, we won't go into it in detail here, but it's in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11 through 16. But let me startle many Bible students by pointing out that David being the king was prophesied in the time of Judges in the book of Ruth, chapter 4. But God makes a commitment that was to David, that was confirmed to Mary by Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. We've talked about that several times. Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, points out that that throne would be vacant for an extended period of time, and indeed it has been. There hasn't been, uh, anyway, so the, uh, you know, for <laughs> several thousand years there has not been anyone on the throne of David, and Jesus never has sat on the throne of David yet, but he's destined to, of course. And, of course, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, has the unconditional covenant. All these covenants are characterized by God saying, I will do this and that. I will do this and that, with no conditions. The Abrahamic covenant has that, the seven statements that are like that. The Palestinian covenant, again, is unilateral, where God is going to do things unilaterally. The Davidic covenant, the same thing. It was announced by God what he's going to do. It's a covenant in the sense that God keeps His promise. It's not a covenant in the sense there was a performance part that Israel had to do. There was with the Mosaic Law, not with these. So one of the questions you need to ask yourself, is God a liar? That's really the issue. And people that sell these other ideas don't realize it, I guess, but they're really assuming that these promises that God made throughout the whole Old Testament, and new actually, uh, He's going to perform. In fact, He points out in Ezekiel 36, that's why He's going to do it. That's why he's going to intervene when Magog invades Israel, etc. Because his reputation is at risk. I told him I'm going to do it, I've got to do it. Not because you deserve it, Israel, it's because my reputation is on the line. That's what he says in Ezekiel 36, verses 20, 19 on to the end of that chapter. And I've already mentioned uh, Paul's great discourse, Romans 9, 10, 11. If you have doubts about this, read Book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And where it points out that Israel has been blinded for a time, but will be restored. When were they blinded? Jesus tells us that in Luke chapter 19, where they reject him as their king, so they are blinded for a time. How long? Paul tells us, Romans 11:25. they're blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Their failure is our great opportunity. In Romans chapter 11, their rejection is not total, nor is it final. The first ten verses of chapter 11 points out that it's not total, and the Verses 11 through 32 in chapter 11 point out that it's not final. I won't take the time to go through it in detail now. 2 Timothy 2.19 says there is a specific number that God knows that are His own. Those that are going to be called to His purpose finally gets completed. That's called the fullness of the Gentile in Romans 11.25. And that brings us then to this chapter. So let's now at this point, with this preamble, there's another element we're going to get into, but which we'll get to. Let's jump into Revelation chapter 7. John says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And again we have metatauta. So this is again post-church. It's, it's, it's uh, after these things. Four corners of the earth. Strange expression. See, cynics say, well, we, the, the believers this think the world's flat and has four corners. No, it's a figure of speech we all use. Another way, we speak of the four compass directions, etc., so I, and the Bible speaks of that frequently. I won't go through all those verses. They'll be in the notes. And these winds are often uh, mentioned, Jeremiah 49, 51, 2 Samuel 22, as winds of judgment, frequent idiom in the Old Testament vocabulary. And uh, the same word for wind is ruach. is the same for spirit, by the way. And just like in the Greek, the pneuma can be air, like pneumatics, which is also the term for spirit. So uh, similar type of uh, linguistic construction.
and the, the earth, the sea, and the trees, the earth is typically Eretz Israel. It stands for Israel typically. Uh, wouldn't insist on it here, but it certainly fits. And the sea is the Gentiles, as we will see well-defined later on in the book. Very common phrase, both in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation. It's interesting how the book of Revelation picks up these Old Testament idioms. It's very much an Old Testament book. It, there, in the 404 verses of the book of Revelation, we have over 800 allusions from the Old Testament. So it's a, that one reason it sounds strange to our ears is only because we haven't done really done our Old Testament homework. The idea of trees are often used as an individual. Psalm, first Psalm, he that, uh, that uh, is righteous is like a tree planted by rivers of water. We use that idiom there. Uh, also in uh, Daniel 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar uh, sees a vision in which he in the vision is actually a tree that's chopped down for a while. And Judges 9, there's a, there's a parable in Judges, Judges chapter 9 that, uh, again, where trees are spoken of as, as, as used as an idiom of individual's authority in a, in a, in a, in a rhetorical sense. But in any case, uh, obviously, what verse 1 says is a, these uh, forces are held back. In verse 2 it says, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having a, the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the land and earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till... We have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. So what's really going on here, setting aside a lot of the technicalities, basically there's a big impending judgment coming. But there's a freeze frame. Time out, stop, freeze. Don't go on until we seal this peculiar group of commandos. Okay? And uh, you'll get into that. Now, this business of uh, sealing, turn to Ezekiel 9. It has to do actually with the, the, the Spirit of God leaving the temple just before it's destroyed and all that. But in, uh, in, in verse 4, in the middle of verse 3, and he called to the man clothed with linen who had a writer's inkhorn by his side. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst of it. And it goes on. The passage develops this in, in verse 6. It talks about. Uh, um, it tells him, Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near to any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. And they began with the ancient men who were before the house, and on it goes. The point is, it's interesting, here in the Old Testament we have a, a, an expression where these particular people that are going to be spared the judgment, are they have a mark set upon them. And that's sort of what's happening here, a very similar kind of thing that's happening here in Revelation 7. When you have that background and you realize those of you that are, are sealed by God have a mark on you that he knows, and the people that need to know know, you begin to understand Satan's counterfeit in Revelation 13. We'll encounter that then, the 666 and all that business. And let me tell you, I don't believe it's barcodes. Not that that isn't a technology that isn't going to be used to gain control by this global government, all that fine, but the mark that's the issue isn't the mark that isn't your number, it's his number you take as a form of allegiance. Different kind of thing than most people realize. But anyway, we're getting ahead of the story. We know if we've studied the sealing of the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13 and 4.30, we've done that in the past, that the sealing of the Holy Spirit seals you in protection. So the sealing, the concept of sealing is, is exploited by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit in those passages. Here again in this passage, as it is in Ezekiel 9, it is a form of protection. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 4, we're going to find out those that have been sealed are protected supernaturally. So what these guys are getting is supernatural protection for the turmoil that's about to unfold. And of course, I believe it's the counterfeit of that that Satan's engineering in Revelation 13 in his own, in his own way. But let's move on. Um, it's interesting that he, in verse 3 it says, Hurt not the earth, and neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in our foreheads, in their foreheads. Notice they're called servants of God. Small point, but you may recall, in John 15, Jesus changes the label of his disciples. Not servants, but friends. He makes a big point of that. And uh, uh, you can run with that one with a concordance on your own. And again, notice the till here, until... Don't let this happen until these people are sealed. And this until may have a relationship, I'll leave for you to think about it, uh, with the until of Romans 11.25. And, uh, but let's move on to verse 4, making real progress tonight. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, by the way, in Galatians 3, 27 through 28, those of us that are in Christ, 
most important two words in the New Testament, this whole concept of being in Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 27, 28, that those that are in Christ are neither Jews nor Gentiles. So that's another hint that this scene is post-church, because this distinction is obviously paramount in this area. The number of 12 is going to be very prominent. It proves very prominent in Revelation 21. Both 12 and 12 squared, that's 144, are prominent there. And we'll discuss the significance of those numbers when we get to chapter 21 in the New Jerusalem and all of that, where both Israel and church are distinct but have a combined role. But now this leads to myth number two that we're trammeled with as we try to work our way through these things. That's this idea that ten tribes are lost. They're somehow misplaced. And this is a basis of a number of ideas, uh, sometimes called British Israelism and other legends, but has no real biblical basis. The notion is that, the, that when the ten tribes, the northern king, when the, when the, when after the civil war, after Solomon died, Rehoboam and Jeroboam had the civil war, the northern ten tribes went under Jeroboam into idolatry, the southern two tribes stayed under Rehoboam faithful. Ultimately, the northern kingdom gets clobbered by the Assyrians, and that uh, the, the, these, these tribes disappear from history. Presumably, they wander off to Europe, and they become uh, very... There's all kinds of colorful legends uh, that get involved there. The trouble with that, colorful though they are, and though many groups take these things quite seriously, uh, has no biblical basis. And that's our, my only interest here is the biblical basis. We'll notice that in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, all 12 tribes were represented. The epistles of James and 1 Peter speaks to the 12 tribes. And, and from here we could embark, and I encourage you to, if you get a chance, is to embark on the prophecies concerning those 12 tribes in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33, two major chapters that deal with prophecies of the 12 tribes. But as you do this, I want you to understand something. The land was proportioned or given to the 12 tribes. When Joshua conquers land, they had lot, God divides the land among the 12 tribes. From that day on, those regions are spoken of by their tribal names. Just as, as someone can go into a district that's called uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco or Orange County uh, that, that speaks generically of an area. So if you speak in Israel of, of Dan, the tribe of Dan is a term used of an area up north that they were allocated and so forth. So you need to understand there's some confusion because often this tribal term is used to refer to geography, not lineage necessarily, as you'll see in a minute. What happened was when God used the Assyrians to judge the northern kingdom, the Assyrians conquered them, but the Assyrians had a policy of repopulation. It's notorious. They would take some, not all, some of their captives, and transplant them into other parts of their empire. They would take captives from the other parts of the empire and translate them there. They would deliberately co-mingle their captives in order to break down their ethnic and national alliances. That was their way of trying to reduce the risk of insurrection. The people that get transplanted into the tribal areas, the northern kingdom, co-mingle with the ones that were left there and become what we call the Samaritans. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom when Jeroboam II fell. That area is called Samaria. The transplanted other tribes that commingle with the remainder become Samaritans. From Second um, Kings 17, Second Chronicles 6, other places, a lot of misunderstanding. What you need to understand is what happened prior to the captivity. And there's many passages, but we'll just uh, confine our attention uh, to Second Chronicles 11. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 11. I want you to get the picture now. There's a civil war. Jeroboam has split off the northern kingdom and taking it into idolatry, putting golden calves at Bethel and Dan and other places and enforcing idolatrous worship. Now I want you to picture what would happen if you were a Levi. Your, your whole world is wrapped up in being a priest faithful to the God of Jehovah, God of the Old Testament. You would feel rather uncomfortable in that regime, wouldn't you? What would you do? You'd pack up and move south, which is exactly what they did. Uh, let's just take a look at Second uh, Chronicles 11, picking up about verse 13. And, and the priests and Levites who were in all Israel resorted to him out of all their borders. Speaking of Rehoboam here, but moving on. For the Levites left their suburban lands and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. And he, for he had appointed, that is Jeroboam, had appointed for himself priests of the high places and for the he-goats. That's a term for, uh, it's also a Jewish term for demons, by the way. But, and for the calves which he had made. So Jeroboam is uh, uh, gone towards idol worship. 
Verse 16, key verse, and after them, that is after the Levites, and out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. So the first point is to recognize the southern kingdom was not confined to the tribes of Judah and Simeon. They were included the remnants, the refugees, if you will, from this northern kingdom commitment to idolatry. Now, by the way, it doesn't say this, but think it through. If you were an idol, if you had a tendency towards idol worship in the southern kingdom, and the, the place you'd want to be is where the action is up north. Very likely, and I, I think we could probably find a scripture, I'm about to search for it, in which the unfaithful, the idol worshippers, migrated to the north, where that was the politically correct thing to do. As the faithful move south and the unfaithful move north, that division takes place. It's interesting, much later, when King Asa reigned as king of the south, another great company migrated to the south. That's in Second Chronicles 15, verse 9. Years after the Assyrian uh, deportation, King Hezekiah of Judah issued a call to all Israel to come and worship in Jerusalem and celebrate Passover. We find that in Second Chronicles 30. Eighty years after that, King Josiah of Judah also issues a call for an offering for the temple and comes back from, quote, Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel, close quote, Second Chronicles 34. Eventually, all the twelve tribes are represented in the south, and God even addresses them as twelve tribes in the south. In Second Chronicles 11, 3, it says, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all Israel in Judah and Benjamin. And so on it goes. The northern kingdom falls, I told you about about the, all of that. I'll just skim through some of this stuff here. It's interesting when the Babylonians take over. Later on, the Syrian Empire falls to the Babylonians. When that takes place, about 586 B.C., that the members of all 12 tribes of Israel are involved. Isaiah, who is prophesying to Judah, refers to them as the house of Jacob, which are called by the name of Israel. When the northern kingdom took over, when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, the slaves are valuable property. It's hard to visualize them being so careless to let them wander off to Europe in the first place. But you'll notice the terminology is commingled. Even after, before the death of Rehoboam, God looked upon all his unity, uh, seeing all Israel and Judah and Benjamin. And after the Babylonian captivity, the Jew and the term Jew and Israelite are used interchangeably. Ezra calls the returning remnant Jews eight times and Israel forty times. Ezra speaks of all Israel in chapter 2 and 3 and 8 and 10 and so forth. Nehemiah calls them Jews 11 times, Israel 22 times. Nehemiah speaks of all Israel being back in the land in Nehemiah 12 verse 47. And of course, all the remnant who returned from Babylon is also represented as all the nation in Malachi first verse of the first chapter. Same thing is true in the New Testament. Our Lord is said to offer him to the nation, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10 and 15. And other tribes other than Judah are mentioned specifically in the New Testament as being represented in the land. Uh, Matthew 4 and uh, Luke 2, Acts 4. Uh, the 12 tribes in Acts 26, 7 and James 1, 1. Anna knew her tribal identity from Asher in um, Luke 2. And Paul knew he's of the tribe of Benjamin and on it goes. The New Testament speaks of Israel 75 times, used the word Jew 174 times. I don't know what you're going to do with that piece of information, but I thought I'd throw it out there. Okay. Now, at the day of Pentecost, by the way, Peter cries, Ye men of Judea, ye men of Israel, and he calls them all the house of Israel. Those all occur in Acts 2, verses 14, 22, and 36. And, of course, they're regathered as one in the famous dry bones vision of Ezekiel 36 and 37, which implies they're all there, of course, in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, one of, these, one of the tragedies of these legends of the so-called lost ten tribes, another tip-off to you, is that they tend also, strangely enough, to lead to anti-Semitism. See, Israel is being regathered just as God announced it. There is going to be an event that God is going to use to get everyone's attention. It's called Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I believe it can happen at any moment. But let's go on. Verse, we got down, I think, what, to verse 5 of, <laughs> of uh, Revelation 7. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Notice Judah is first, just as it is in 1 Chronicles 5. Moving to verse 6. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. It's interesting that the 12 tribes are listed 20 times in the Scripture, and each time in a different order, and each time with a different complexion. It's interesting that there are occasions when, for various reasons, one or two or whatever tribes are missing from the list. 
And when you study that, there's always a reason for that. Now, one of the things that will puzzle you if you start studying the 12 tribes, when you see their list, you'll find there's certain occasions when the tribe of Levi is included and certain times when the tribe of Levi is omitted. There are lists of completeness that have the tribe of Levi, and you'll find there's 12 tribes there. There are other occasions, such as the marching order of the army. The tribe of Levi was exempt from military duties. So you look at the marching of the army, and you find there's 12 tribes there without Levi. And this can confuse you unless you are tipped off that there aren't 12 tribes of Israel. There are 13, actually. And so you've got an alphabet of 13 to choose from, in effect. So if you're trying to include the tribe of Levi and end up with 12, you speak of the tribe of Joseph. One of the, obviously one of the twelve uh, sons of Jacob. But if you're trying to leave Levi out and you still want twelve, it turns out, you may recall, when, when uh, Joseph went to Egypt, took a wife, he had two children named Ephraim and Manasseh. And later on, when Jacob comes to Egypt, he adopts them as his own. He blesses them, but what's involved there is an adoption procedure. So there are actually 13, if you, if you look through Joseph and see his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, you've got 13 to choose from. And that's how you can play this shell game, always having 12 tribes, but being a little flexible on what you include and what you don't, if you follow me. Once you understand that, you won't have trouble going through these various lists in the Old Testament and elsewhere. But here, in the book of Revelation, it starts to take on an in interesting note because there are two tribes missing. If you look through this list, and you know the 12 tribes, if you look through verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, you won't find the tribe of Ephraim. Missing, it would seem. But it isn't really. What you discover is the tribe of Manasseh is mentioned in verse 6, right? And yet uh, the tribe of Joseph is mentioned in verse 8. Well, if you've already dealt with Manasseh, what's left of the tribe of Joseph? Ephraim. So Ephraim's there. But if you were the tribe of Ephraim, you'd probably be a little put out, because you haven't gotten mentioned. You're there, technically. Count your blessings. But uh, there's something strange going on here. Bear in mind, I really mean this, it's not uh, that every detail in the Scripture is there by engineering. Every number, every place in the name, the subtleties of the text are there by supernatural engineering. And as you get, uh, the more you uh, learn your Bible, the more you'll appreciate that. And as you begin to appreciate that, a lot of these controversies start to evaporate. In any case, the tribe of Dan, though, is missing. You can't find the tribe of Dan here. Ephraim is there, but it's gotten sort of the back of the hand, in a sense. Why is the tribe of Dan omitted? And here we could spend a good whole evening exploring the history, the prophecy surrounding, and the conduct of the Danites, the tribe of Dan. In Deuteronomy 29, it mentions that idolaters are to be separated and to be blotted out. And we'll discover that that's exactly what the tribe of Dan is known for. In the northern kingdom, as they, when idolatry starts, it, it makes its entrance through the tribe of Dan. His idolatry is recorded in Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 16. Also in Judges 18, right, uh, verses 1 and 2 and 30 through 31. It turns out that under Jeroboam, the one that's leading all this idolatry in 1 Kings 12, Dan is the leader of the apostasy. So Dan gets identified with idol worship. We see it happen again a hundred years later in 2 Kings 10. He again is involved with idolatry. It's interesting that that was prophesied. If you recall, remember I said that Genesis 49 is a very key chapter if you're going to study the tribes, because in Genesis 49, Jacob, in his old age, leaning on his staff, prophesies over each of the twelve tribes. And one of the things that I'll leave you to get the notes or, or study the book of uh, the commentaries of the book of Genesis to go through these because these prophecies are cryptic riddles and yet fascinating to unravel and watch them full, be fulfilled in prophecy. And uh, the largest one, of course, is on Judah, verse 8 on, especially verse 10. is a very, very famous one. Again, I won't get into that here. But in verse 17, it says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. And I won't try to exegete this and get into it all, but let me just simply tell you that this leads to an insight, even by the rabbis of Israel, that the Antichrist will come. Not their term, but in fact, will come from the tribe of... There's a tradition that the Antichrist will emerge out of the tribe of Dan. 
But in any case, this uh, prophecy of his uh, calamity is there mentioned. And in, Hebrew, in Jeremiah 4.14 and Amos 8.14, in the Hebrew text, maybe not in your English Bible, it, he's, he's spoken of it as the voice of calamity. We also notice that under the Deborah and Barak in the, in the time of the Judges, Dan in Judges chapter 5 or 17 is guilty apparently of cowardice. So, now it's interesting that Dan is not wiped out. Because verse 16, by the way, in Genesis says that he will judge his people as one of the tri elder, tribes of Israel. It's interesting that when we get to Ezekiel 48, when the land is given again to the tribes in the millennium, the first tribe to receive his inheritance will be the tribe of Dan. So Dan survives the Great Tribulation, but he does so on his own power, so to speak. Or another, well, I should put it another way. Uh, that's not poorly expressed. He does, he, he does not survive it with the benefit of the supernatural sealing that these other uh, tribes have the benefit of, these other people have. I want you to notice that there is a throng in Revelation 7 that's preserved through the Tribulation by this supernatural sealing. They're in distinction from those who are, re not, uh, who are kept out of the tribulation altogether that, uh, G that Revelation talks about in chapter 3, verse 10. Very distinct. This throng is preserved through the tribulation by being sealed. The other group is kept out of it, kept out of the time of the tribulation by being removed in advance. In Revelation 3, verse 10. Now Ephraim, by the way, was associated with Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam's idolatry in Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. And I, I've already covered that. So they, they're here, but by the skin of the teeth, sort of. Now these 144,000, these 12,000 are from the 12 tribes of Israel. If someone rings your doorbell and claims to be one of the, one of the 144,000, try to determine what tribe he's from, okay? There's one group of all the Jehovah's Witnesses that have clung to this. They were very embarrassed when their own numbers grew to over 144,000, you know? And then they doubled it and they played games. If you know the history, this is kind of funny, actually. Funny if it wasn't so tragic, but in any case, I don't know why it is that these groups, several of them, uh, find a need to identify with 144,000, which are clearly a Jewish group. The Holy Spirit's gone to some length to make sure we don't allegorize this or make it spiritual or, or uh, symbolic or something. So the 12,000 from each of the 12, and, and it goes on to list them all. You'd think, I don't know what else you could do to, to get, a, get us to take it seriously. Now these 144,000, we'll discover, uh, when we get to Revelation 14, are destined to be the glorious temple bodyguard. They're going to be with the Lord, uh, serving Him. Kind of exciting. Let's go on to verse 9. Now we're going to see the fruit of these 144,000. They're supernaturally sealed, so they will uniquely survive this time of trouble coming. They bear fruit. In fact, they are going to yield a fruit unparalleled in the history of the earth. Verse 9, after this, John says, after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues that stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Verse 10, they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And it goes on, the crescendo starts. Interesting, these people are clothed in white robes. We're seeing here the greatest harvest of souls that the Bible speaks of. And written also in Isaiah 49, verses 10, 11, and 12. And Isaiah 60, first three verses. It's interesting that Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 that is quoted in, in Acts chapter 2 about the uh, giving of the Spirit there, that that quote links these with the prophecies of the Great Tribulation. That which is poured out in Joel here is anticipated and started, in a sense, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2. It's interesting that these that are, are, are seen here have palms in their hands. Now, I'm going to suggest to you the possibility that that links this with another occasion when people greeted Jesus Christ with palms in their hands. When he presented himself as the king, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the king, on the very day that Gabriel predicted. However, that was also the same crowd that four days later said, crucify him. And obviously his rejection as a Messiah is, is on record. But it's interesting that that Palm Sunday, as we call it, that triumphal entry, uh, it's, it's, it's almost as if the clock stopped there and is being, being restarted again here. 
Now, by the way, now that's your, your comparison passage is John 12, 13, if you want. The possible link of all of this with the Feast of Tabernacles uh, from Leviticus 23, uh, also in 2 Chronicles 20, Ezra 3, uh, and John 12, is, is, is reasonable. And in Nehemiah 8, the fact that the Feast of Tabernacles involves celebration with palms. The term palms links these ideas, and to really exploit that takes more time than we can devote to it here tonight. But those are all possibilities. If you really want to study uh, prophecy, you'll want to study the Feasts of Israel, the seven Feasts of Israel, Feasts of Moses, and see their prophetic implication. The Feast of Tabernacles has in view the same things that are in view here, in effect. Verse 10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb. This is Hosanna. We, we read that in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and John 12. We may not realize what Hosanna means, because it's a Hebrew phrase, of course, but it's, you know, it's a... A, a, a praise of salvation. Verse 11, And all the angels stood round about the throne, and about the elders, and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Now, by the way, you can study these blessings and they concatenate, but you'll notice you've got blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. How many of those? Seven. Good guess. Okay. And... Uh, so we see the, the evidence of design everywhere. Now one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these that are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? Yeah, John didn't know he's getting an oral quiz. He's got a, got a little exam going on here. Verse 14. <laughs> and John says, I said unto her, Sir, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's a strange kind of cleansing, but I think you, if you're familiar with the idioms of, our, of the Scripture, familiar that our, we are the white speaks of righteousness. We wash our robes. They're made white, what, in the blood of the Lamb. That he, it, it prevailed for you and I. It's kind of strange that John did not recognize them. Sort of a point being made here by the Holy Spirit that this group is not a group that John anticipated. That should be another clue. Don't confuse these people with the church. For other reasons we'll develop as, we, as the book unfolds, there's going to be, people say, gee, can't, you know, everybody has this idea that you know, when the church is gone, the Holy Spirit's taken out of the world, uh, are, there gonna be, are, there, are people going to be saved? Are there people going to be saved? The greatest evangel evangelical fruit will be born post-church. Israel has failed in its mission in many ways. It's the, the Old Testament is full of its manifest failures. So is the church in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. If you recall those seven letters, seven churches, not one of the churches saw themselves correctly. Boy, that's humbling. Some of them had underestimated the predicament, the position. Praise God. They were better off than they thought they were. But in, in large measure, most churches were not as well off as you. Know, they, they thought they'd done some things well, but Jesus straightens that out pretty quick in the seven letters, seven churches. But it's interesting that many people think, well, gee, you know, they, they've done their homework, they understand 2 Thessalonians 2, they understand that the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out in the sense that the church has the unique benefit of being sealed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's going to have a terminus. There's a point at which that is removed. The restrainer of sin, which is only God, not the angel of Michael or any other such thing. The restrainer of 2 Thessalonians 2 is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be removed. You, We have no ability to imagine this world if... The Holy Spirit, as he indwells the believers, is removed. What, what, what restraints will be left? The only thing that has restrained sin in the Scripture, from cover to cover, is God himself. Not angels. They do a lot of things. They don't restrain sin. They execute God's judgment. Now, from that view, though, many people say, Gee, well, you know, they see the story unfold in Revelation. They think, boy, it's just gloom and doom. And also, No, there's also going to be enormous fruits to the ministry of these 144,000, and also a couple of other guys we're going to see in Revelation 11. The Holy Spirit is going to be very, very big. Nobody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ but by the Holy Spirit. But it would seem that he's going to be operating in the same mode he did all through the Old Testament. The Old Testament believer did not have the indwelling benefit you and I share. That's what blew Paul away. He was a Pharisee. He understood the Old Testament. We discovered the benefit you and I we hear so much about, it, we take it for granted. We don't, even, we don't understand its uniqueness, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Unique since Pentecost, and that relationship endures until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Come in where? Come into heaven. The church will be raptured, as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. 
But the Holy Spirit is going to be very, very busy. In fact, his greatest fruits, apparently, will be the result of these 144,000. From every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, as the Scripture says. It's going to get exciting. We see this group there that John doesn't recognize. And why are they distinguished from those martyrs and what have you that, uh, from prior to the tribulation? Is it because their predecessors are already in heaven as the elders from the rapture? It's the only conclusion you actually can come to, but I'll let you work that out. Verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. That's incredible. That's great. But how does it compare to the church? Church is joint heirs and rule with him. I'm not knocking what they're doing here. Don't misunderstand me. But there's some interesting distinctions. They serve him day and night in his temple. That has to be the millennial temple. How do I know that's the millennial temple? Because in heaven there's no night there. We'll find that out in Revelation 21 and 22. This is the millennial temple you're talking about. Verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into the living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. You'll find that same expression essentially in Isaiah 49, verse 10. But let's just summarize some things. Let's call these people, for lack of another term right now, the fruits of the 144,000. This group that we've just read about has some distinctives. Don't confuse them with the 144,000. They're Jewish. They're the Jew they're 144,000 spiritual combat troops that are sealed from the 12,000. What do they accomplish? They accomplish an incredibly unnumberable multitude to be saved. I want you to notice, though, Revelation 3.10 made it clear the church is to be kept out of the tribulation. These are the results of the tribulation. They came out of the tribulation. Okay? See, at verse 14, they came out of the great tribulation. Distinctive. Also, John didn't recognize them. The church will sit on thrones. These stand before the thrones. The church is crowned. These are uncrowned. And we have harps versus palms. You get whole, they sing a new song, cry with a loud voice, so forth. And we can talk about you do a whole study on palms, if you like. And, of course, the church, in contrast, reigns as kings and priests, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter 2, 9, and so forth. These, we, the church reigns as kings and priests. These serve him day and night in the temple. Okay, so that's Revelation chapter 7. Very controversial chapter, not overtly in many ways, except it raises these issues about the proper role of Israel with respect to the book of Revelation. I strongly urge you to do your own study, come to your own conclusions, study these things carefully, but I do believe you will not be able to understand what's coming forth prophetically or even the news broadcast unless you understand God's role for the nation of Israel. Don't misunderstand. They're an unbelief. Most of them not even godly, let alone biblically. And yet, that's exactly what God predicted in his dry bones vision in Ezekiel, that they would be regathered, they would be gathered in the, with flesh, but not with the Spirit. There's an event that's going to occur that will startle them to realize that God has the real God, the God of Israel, has once the God of Abraham, or Avram, Isaac, and Yaakov, if I may, uh, has his hand on them once again. And that's this interrupted invasion by Russia and the Muslim nations that's about to take place. And when God intervenes in that so dramatically, they'll suddenly wake up and realize, whoa! That's exactly what the Scripture said. That's exactly what God points out in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So you need to understand, first of all, just to understand prophecy, that God has a place for Israel. They will, they're going to be driven to the wall. And that's what the, the, the Great Tribulation is really all about. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's designed to get them to repent and to petition the Lord Jesus Christ to return, in which he takes them up on that. We'll study that in Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, and chapter 6 in Hosea, where that's laid out. Uh, interesting, interesting time. For next time, we have, obviously, after chapter 7, we come to chapter 8. And I'd like to show you the first verse in advance in order to get you to do a homework assignment. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour. Someone with more guts than I have would say, gee, that means there's no women in heaven. <laughs> At the same time, it's rather interesting, because that's there for a reason. What you, obviously, what 
unfolds in chapter 8 and 9 are these trumpet judgments. What most people fail to understand is that silence is a preceding introduction to these trumpet judgments. Now, one of the things I'm going to ask you to consider or explore on your own, and you might want to do this in preparation a little bit for next time, is read the book of Joshua, at least the front end of it. Not the signing of all the land later, but I mean the, the, the things you're going to alert yourself to is the Battle of Jericho, as just for starters. Battle of Jericho. Joshua is uh, uh, tackling these seven nations that occupy the land. The strongest of them is the Amorites. Their capital is the place called Jericho. That was, the word Jericho, by the way, means the house of the moon god. But the point is, he sends in initially two witnesses. That's interesting. What do they accomplish? They get Rahab saved, a Gentile woman, by the way. But uh, what they do then, interestingly enough, is they um, march around the city once a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they march around seven times. What everybody misses, unless you read it carefully, is during that entire period of time, they keep silent. And it's the seventh time of the seventh trip that they blow the trumpets and shout and the walls come down. You know the story. What most people don't realize is who led the battle. Who was the one that really fought the Battle of Jericho, despite the popular uh, hymn or song, whatever, is Jesus Christ did. Read very carefully the last part of Joshua chapter 5. You'll discover that Joshua uh, is on sentry duty and encounters this guy with a sword drawn. And Joshua challenges him like a sentry. Are you for us or for our enemies? He's ready to take him on. And this person says, take off your shoes. You're on hallowed ground. I am the captain of the Lord's host. Well, first of all, that phrase, take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground, is something Joshua would remember because 40 years earlier, he heard that come from the burning bush when he was there with Moses. An angel never allows himself to get worshipped. Daniel tries, the angel says, see thou do it not. John, you'll see, also does. No, no, he gets scolded. Angels, with one notable exception, angels do not allow themselves to get worshipped. This notable exception, of course, is a guy who got in a lot of trouble, a guy by the name of Lucifer, who now is known as Satan. Isaiah 14 and all of that. This one commands to be worshipped. So he's not just an angel, he's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He calls himself the captain of the Lord's host. That misleads us because in our mind, a captain is a junior officer, a field grade officer. No, no, captain there is numero uno. He's the head of the host. And so Jesus Christ is there, and, and it's interesting that we have Yehoshua fighting the battle of Jericho. And as you unfold the book of, Jericho, the book of Joshua, you'll discover all kinds of interesting parallels with the, the uh, book of Revelation. So as preparation for next time, you might find it provocative if you get some time between now and our next meeting is to, uh, to reread the book of Joshua, at least skim through the first uh, half a dozen chapters, uh, first ten chapters. Uh, you want, you'll discover they align themselves under a leader called Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness. He gets defeated by signs of the sun and the moon and so forth in uh, the Battle of Beth Horon, chapter 10. And the kings that get defeated uh, hide in caves, say rocks fall on us and so forth. As you study the book of Joshua, uh, I can't find this in any commentary, but I've become very convinced that it is intentionally uh, designed by the Holy Spirit to be a foreshadowing or an amplification in some sense of the book of Revelation, or maybe it's the other way around, really. In the book of Revelation, another Yehoshua was dispossessing the planet Earth of the usurpers uh, on the behalf of God's people. Different, different schedule, kind of exciting. Have you take a look at that as we prepare to go through the book of Revelation in, the, in these action-packed 14 chapters between 6 and 19. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you that we are here together before your throne. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the opportunity to come before your throne without an appointment. And yet, Father, to enjoy those appointments you've ordained where you have allowed us to get together to behold your word. We pray, Father, that you would indeed help us to see clearly those distinctions that you've placed here for our learning. Help us, Father, to learn from the experiences of your people Israel. Help us to, uh, to properly appropriate to ourselves their successes and their failures. Help us, Father, to understand how we, too, can fail as they did on so many occasions. And yet, Father, let, help us to understand those commitments that you've made to them. Help us to understand that you are indeed a God who takes 
his word seriously. His promises are sure. Help us, Father, to understand what you have forthcoming for your people. Help us, Father, to understand what you would have of us in these days that remain, that we too might bear fruit, just as these 144,000 will bear their fruit. So, Father, we would just ask you that through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us your word, help us to discover that specific role you would have of each of us in these days that remain. Help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. For we commit ourselves afresh into your hands. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.